This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our international network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is going on and what it means to you and your family. Welcome back. Everybody has a cell phone. They've become extensions of ourselves, literally and figuratively. Walk down the street and see how many people you can find who are not either holding their phone in their hand or talking on it. We're obsessed. On today's show, we'll hear one woman's story of dealing with her husband's brain tumor, which, like many other Americans, developed after years of heavy cell phone use. That story and Patty with the Week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Patty Wood, what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Well, there's really bad news about the FCC approving Wi-Fi on school buses, and this is from multiple sources. So it will soon be easier for students to connect to social media sites during that long bus ride home, thanks to an FCC decision that allows schools to use E-rate funding, money earmarked for connecting schools to the Internet to cover the cost of providing Wi-Fi on school buses. Supporters of the legislation, including all of the major tech providers and wireless companies, claim this will help students have more time to study or do their homework during bus rides. This is bull. There's no way the kids are going to be doing their homework, right? I mean, if they can log on to their social media sites? That's right. They're out of school. They're not going to just jump on that bus and start doing their homework. Let me do my homework. Yeah, I know, but this is is the justification for it, right? This is the justification. But groups of parents, educational experts, and health and wellness advocates disagree, as do you and I. Yeah, no kidding. Nathan Symington, one of the Republican members of the five-person commission, thinks the change is wasteful and unlikely to benefit students and teachers. Quote, Anyone who's ever been in a school bus should have a healthy skepticism that most children will, in fact, sit quietly and do homework on their laptops instead of socializing with the friends on the bus and browsing social media on their phones. Of course. End quote. Of course. Education organizations such as the Consortium for School Networking, a nonprofit organization supported by the major ed tech companies, cheered the move. Keith Kruger, executive director of the Consortium for School Networking, said, quote, we think it's a good step forward. It's logical that we would extend the learning space just like we do in schools. It's not just classrooms, but cafeterias and study halls where students can do their homework, end quote. Kruger went on to claim that having Wi-Fi on board improves students' behavior on buses. <laughs> yeah, well, I could probably all, agree with them because they're yeah, all they're all stuck on their screens. Into their right. screens. Yeah. According to the research firm Global Data, the U.S. ed tech market had total revenues of seventy billion dollars in 2022. The international market for ed tech is expected to reach four hundred and twenty-seven billion dollars by 2026. Can we just talk about the way that technology has taken over the education system? Yeah. You know, it is beginning to replace, essentially replace teachers with technology and AI, and this is how our kids are going to learn? That's not how kids learn. That's not how children learn. You know. Children learn one-on-one or in a classroom where everybody is paying attention to the teacher. And the teacher can come around to everybody's desk and work with them and see how they're understanding the lesson, et cetera, et cetera. This is just another way for technology to really you know, keep these children engaged on screens from the minute they get on that school bus in the morning until the minute they get off that school bus and walk home with their cell phones in their hands. 
There is an effort around the country by about 75% of school districts to limit their use of cell phones or limit students' use of cell phones in class. Yeah. And so that's a good thing. This is going a step too far. For those that are interested in learning more about this subject, we have a website called techsafeschools.org. That's techsafeschools, all one word, dot org. And there you'll find, among other things, a lot of science about the health impacts uh, related to RF radiation from all these wireless devices, as well as a, a sample policy on limiting cell phones at schools. So yeah. if you're interested, check it out. Okay, what else you got? So this is actually written by me because I write a column for our local paper, and the title is Who Should Pay the Bill for Climate Change? If you make a mess, it's your responsibility to clean it up. This is a basic lesson taught in kindergarten, along with sharing and getting along with others. But that lesson is apparently lost on the executives of the oil and gas industries that are largely responsible for the creation of our global climate crisis and who have spent untold millions of dollars over decades to obfuscate their role. Still today, oil and gas companies fight the regulations needed to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change while they strenuously lobby to keep their lucrative government subsidies that add hundreds of millions to their bottom line. We're still paying these companies yeah, subsidies? subsidies? Unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. Meanwhile, the cost of dealing with the destruction caused by climate change and building climate resilience, including desperately needed upgrades to infrastructure, is falling on American taxpayers. And that cost is growing exponentially while oil and gas companies continue to post record profits. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the total cost of climate and weather-related disasters in the United States in 2022 was more than $165 billion. That's about $500 for each man, woman, and child in the United States. And that's just last year's bill. I was going to say, that's just for one year. 500 bucks for every man, woman, and child to pay the cost of climate change. Correct. While these companies are posting... Unbelievable profits. profits. Right. And it doesn't include the immense health costs associated with climate change. So let's talk about yeah. that for a minute. So rates of asthma and other respiratory diseases from air pollution caused not only by the burning of fossil fuels, but from the wildfires, which are directly related to climate change, mm -hmm. are increasing. Between 1999 and 2018, asthma rates in the U.S. increased by more than 43%. That's a huge jump. Yeah, no kidding. Mosquito-borne illnesses on the rise as temperatures increase and historic weather patterns are redrawn included cases of malaria in Florida and Texas for the first time in 20 years. And the Northeast has seen an increase in more serious mosquito and tick-borne illnesses due to the increase in the duration of disease transmission seasons as well as flooding, which increases the breeding mm. potential for many of these vectors. Interesting. So the longer it stays hot, the more mosquito-borne illnesses we have. And the, 100%. And they're migrating north. Correct. Extreme heat in Arizona became so dangerous last summer that people who accidentally fell on the asphalt were taken to the hospital with serious, sometimes life-threatening burns. I remember this. Exposure to extreme heat can also called, cause heat stroke and exacerbate pre-existing cardiovascular and respiratory conditions. Mm. So the other thing is that cities and towns are routinely opening cooling centers. I mean, this We never heard of this when we were kids. No. But no. we have cooling centers for local residents without access to air conditioning during heat emergencies. But many elderly and disabled people need transportation to those centers, so sure. who pays for that? We do. 
In a salt in the wound scenario, it will be our children and grandchildren who will pay the highest price for climate change, not only with their pocketbooks and wallets, but with their health. 90% of the diseases resulting from the climate crisis are likely to affect children under the age of five. New York legislators well-informed about all of the above have addressed this imbalance and responsibility for the costs of climate change. The Climate Change Superfund Act is a first-in-the-nation piece of legislation that would shift at least a portion of the financial cost for dealing with climate-related expenses from local governments to the oil and gas companies themselves, who have so far escaped responsibility for cleaning up their mess. The legislation would require oil and gas producers to chip in three billion a year for the next 25 years, a tiny fraction of the estimated costs and a tiny fraction of their profits. I was going to say, because the, the cost in 22 was $165 oh, yeah. billion. That's right. We're asking them to put in $3 billion? Yeah. But not surprisingly, the oil and gas lobby has pushed back vigorously oh, against really? the bill, which would follow the basic let the polluter pay principle, which has been the basis for most Superfund legislation since the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The American Petroleum Institute, the powerful trade group for the oil and natural gas industry, has sent a statement to New York state legislators saying its members strongly oppose this bill. I bet they do. I bet they do. Wow. Well, that's a really interesting concept. I wonder if it'll catch on in other states. Supporters right now are hoping that Governor Hochul will include the bill in the state's budget this yeah, year. Yeah. It's pretty critical. It's pretty obvious that this is the way to go, well, right? Yeah. I mean, we're not even asking them to pay for all of it, just a tiny fraction of it. It's like, you know what? What you learned in kindergarten was if you make a mess, it's your responsibility to clean it up. And now for our final story. The rain is contaminated with PFAS. The rain. The rain. So here We're you go. We're not talking about the rain in Spain. Title, We're talking about nope, all rain nope, in the, the title world. is Rainwater Unsafe to Drink Due to Chemicals. Rainwater everywhere on the planet is unsafe to drink due to levels of toxic chemicals known as PFAS that exceed the latest guidelines, according to a new study by Stockholm University scientists. Commonly known as forever chemicals because they disintegrate extremely slowly, PFAS, which stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, were initially found in packaging, shampoo, or makeup, but have spread to our entire environment, including our air and water. There is nowhere on earth where the rain would be safe to drink, according to the measurements that we have taken, says Ian Cousins, a professor at the university and the lead author of the study published in Environmental Science and Technology. A compilation of the data since 2010 that his team studied showed that, quote, even in Antarctica or the Tibetan Plateau, the levels in the rainwater are above the drinking water guidelines that the U.S. EPA, that's our own Environmental Protection Agency, proposed. Normally considered pristine, the two regions still have PFAS level 14 times higher than the U.S. drinking water guidelines. Once ingested, PFAS accumulates in the body. According to some studies, exposure leads to problems with fertility, developmental delays in children, increased risks of obesity or certain cancers, prostate, kidney, and testicular, and an increase in cholesterol levels. Cousins said that PFAS were now so persistent and ubiquitous that they will never disappear from the planet. We have made the planet inhospitable to human life by irreversibly contaminating it now so that nothing is clean anymore, and to the point that it's not clean enough to be safe, he said. 14 times the EPA safe drinking water level in Tibet. Correct. In the rainwater in Tibet. 
Yeah. I mean, I, you know, yeah. Yeah, just think let about me, this. Yeah, let me just keep reading what this guy said, this, um, you know, this Ian Cousins, who's a professor at the university that did this study. Quote, we have crossed a planetary boundary, referring to a central paradigm for evaluating Earth's capacity to absorb the impact of human activity. It's not a great situation to be in where we've contaminated the environment to the point where background exposure is no longer safe. And we continue to manufacture these chemicals. Right, and they're going to oh, but they, but they say that they're going to they're going to stop manufacturing them in 2025, maybe 2027. Why are we waiting? And they're going to continue to pollute even after we stop making oh, them in the factory. The fact is for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's every pizza box. It's every pizza box. It's every microwave popcorn bag. It's mascara that that it's gets washed type, off your brand. eyelashes and goes down the drain. And it's in clothing, and it's in manufacturing equipment, and it's in upholstery materials and construction materials, and it's in so many things. Carpeting is a huge source of PFAS. Basically, they can't make plastic things without PFAS, right? Because is, it, yeah, it, this, it's, it's like a lubricant I for the needs, manufacturing process. I need some process. real proof on this, but I have heard from somebody in the American Chemistry Council who said that we can't make plastic without adding PFAS to it because it allows the plastic material to go through the extruders and the molds that we use in the manufacturing process without sticking. And so because we don't want them to stick, we have to tell our kids, don't stick out your tongue and catch those snowflakes anymore because they're above the EPA drinking water level. Is that right? The PFAS levels in the snow. Yeah, I'm afraid. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Ellen Marks and her husband, Alan, didn't start out to be troublemakers or rabble-rousers. They lived in Southern California. Alan had gone to medical school but decided it wasn't for him, and he ended up in real estate development and sales. They had three kids. Life was good. His job required Alan to be in close contact with his customers. And when the first mobile phones came out, as clunky as they were, they were like a dream come true. In the rough and tumble world of real estate, being in touch could make all the difference between winning and losing. Alan didn't hesitate. He was an early adapter. I think it was, let's see, Mandy is now 36. I think she was about a year old. So that was 1985, yeah, that he got the big one, the big thing you carried around a brick book. And then he had the car phones. I remember we moved to the East Bay of San Francisco and real windy roads, and he got me a car phone because he was afraid I was going to get lost in the hills. Ellen Marks, or Ellie as she's known to her friends, recalls those early days when mobile phones were new. You know, he would use it a lot in the car, driving around, which is probably one of the worst places. I used to get angry at how much he used. I, you know, I threatened to throw that thing away a couple of times. So the sad part is that he's a really good man. He wanted to provide for his family and do the best. And then his personality started changing probably about three or four years before we knew that this thing was growing. In 2008, Alan was diagnosed with a oligodendroglioma. It's a um, brain tumor that was in his right 
frontal lobe and he never had any symptoms other than personality changes which i feel is important for people to know if you see extreme changes in a relative or a, lo- a friend loved one whatever they really should get an mri um because he had extreme changes and his doctors apologized to me later that they didn't catch it so anyhow um he was seemingly healthy other than that he was 56 at the time went to bed the night before we were to leave for our youngest child's college graduation the next day we lived in california she was in colorado and about two o'clock in the morning i heard him making strange noises woke me up and he was unconscious and he was having a grand mal seizure which i had never seen before but i knew immediately what it was it was horrific his whole body was contorting all that so i called 911 paramedics came and it lasted lasted a good 45 minutes till they got him off the bed and onto the gurney and all that and they would say to him his eyes were open and i'd say alan alan and nothing and they'd say mr mark squeeze my hand nothing he it, like he wasn't there it was a really horrible experience so anyhow took him by ambulance to our local hospital in Walnut Creek California and within an hour they told us that he had a brain tumor in his brain in his right frontal lobe they actually told him go home and live with it for 5 years and die our oldest son Zach had interned for senator Kennedy a couple of years prior to that in his private office and witnessed him holding two phones one to each ear at the same time he was always on it people who worked there heard about Zach's father and Kennedy and the coincidence he was you know Zach was still in touch with people there and they said well there's a rumor floating around the office that it could have been his cell phone use I hadn't even thought about this before but then I started turning on the TV and there's Dr. Deborah Davis and Dr. Keith Black on Larry King Live talking about Kennedy and the possibility that it was his cell phone use and all of this is while we're waiting for Alan to have his surgery and we're just freaking out because they kept saying lethal brain tumor. I contacted Deborah Davis and Keith Black and Deborah was amazing. She gave me a list of people. She said send Alan's cell phone records and medical records. to all these experts all over the world and they all got back to me within a few weeks and they said it is more likely than not that your husband's glioma was caused by his long-term cell phone use he had a grade 2 tumor grade 4 is the glioma that's the killer the glioblastoma multiforme which a lot of people including Kennedy have had Alan was blessed with more years and um You know the sad part is though that I've come to know a lot of brain tumor patients and it was really sad when one said to me the only thing worse than dying from a brain tumor is living with one. One day I got a call from Congressman Kucinich and he wanted to know if my husband could come to Washington DC to testify and I said no he's in no shape to do that post surgery and he said well will you do it and I said absolutely so i was shocked that i was going to go testify to congress and everybody educated me i was learning about the science and the corruption i was just stunned to hear what had gone on all these years because i like the normal person thought that if there was a danger to something that everybody's using our government would take care of it very naive 
because in reality, this is tobacco all over again. I did it um, September of 2008. I testified to Congress and the FCC was right next to me. And when Congressman Kucinich asked them why they haven't changed their exposure limits since 1996, and mind you, this was 2008, and we're 14 years later now, and they still haven't changed, and they've been told to, he pointed fingers. He said, well, you guys haven't told us to do it, pointing to Congress. And he also made a comment during the question and answer period that the FCC does not have the scientific expertise to do this. So after testifying to Congress, I started hearing from so many other people in the same boat as us, people who had brain tumors and thought it was their cell phone or their doctor told them it was probably their cell phone. And it was shocking to me how many people were affected by this. And they were young. Alan was 56 at the time. There were people in their 20s, 30s, 40s. There was one woman who called me. She was a real estate agent and while she was in practice selling real estate, she kept a phone in each pocket. And her four-year-old died from a glioma. And she thought that was the only reason she could think that her child would have a brain tumor and the doctors agreed with her. Radiation is the primary cause of a primary brain tumor. And it used to be thought that it was just ionizing radiation. And now we know with all the science that's out there, not the industry funded, the independent science, that non-ionizing radiation is causing brain tumors and other cancers and other deleterious health effects. So I vowed to take on this issue because I knew what it did to my family. And I saw what it was doing to other families. And I said, I can't walk away from this. So I met Nancy Pelosi in person once around that, around 2009. I said, why isn't Congress doing anything about this? Oh, we don't know enough. So, you know, they know more now, but they knew a lot then too. And it just, it's, it's all about corporate greed and their, you know, hold over our government and not putting public health first. I did work with Gavin Newsom. He wanted to do something on this in San Francisco. He was worried when his wife was pregnant. He saw her holding a cell phone to her abdomen. And um, I worked with the environmental working group on that. And we did get legislation passed um, unanimously to post a warning at the point of sale. And the industry sued. They, this is what they do. They were, we had 25 other cities and states waiting to do it. They were writing all of them. And they found out who they were. They were writing all of them letters threatening to sue before they even did anything. Ellie's talking about a right-to-know law, which required that a warning be displayed where phones were sold, advising customers not to hold the phone directly against their bodies. The exact same warning that's included with every cell phone if you dig way down into the legal warnings buried deep inside. So just to be clear, the cell phone companies were threatening to sue any municipality that dared to say what the cell phone companies themselves were saying. They just didn't want anyone to think twice about buying or using a phone. They knew of the danger, and they wanted to control how much the public knew about it. There was a lot of corruption that went on. I witnessed it firsthand. And the law was repealed four years later. And one of the lawyers who helped get it repealed was appointed a federal judge by Obama a few weeks later. 
Now, if you put the puzzle together, Obama was good friends with Tom Wheeler, who was head of the FCC at the time. And they knew we had 25 cities and states waiting to do this. So the, the puzzle pieces fit together. I got a phone call from Aaron Brockovich one day. And my phone kept ringing and I was working and I wasn't answering it. And finally, I thought, I better answer this. I have no idea who it is. And she said, this is Aaron Brockovich. And I said, no, who is this really? <laughs> and she said, no. She said, I've been following your work and I want to talk to you about it. She said, I have an attorney for you who wants to take on the cell phone and brain tumor cases. Oh my gosh, okay. So she got him on the phone. His name is Hunter Lundy. And we went with him. And I've introduced many plaintiffs to him since, and he has met others too. And he took our case on in 2010. Uh, we're suing for some outrageous amount of money. I don't even know, 800 million or something like that. But it's not the money. It, it, I mean, yes, these families do deserve some compensation. Their lives have been destroyed by this. But people need to know. And the fact that some of these cases began in 2001, and they're still going, Yes, that's a long time. However, these attorneys are putting their own time and financial resources into this. It validates the fact that there's something to this. They wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't real. By 2005, there were a couple of dozen brain cancer and product liability cases that remained active. And the defendants in those cases wanted them dismissed under federal preemption law. The defendants being AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, all of those, their attorneys, they said, this is federally preempted. The FCC sets the exposure limits. There's no reason for these people to be suing and all that. However, the appellate court in the Fourth Circuit in Baltimore in 2004 said, nope, this is not preempted. And the cases move forward. So that was one victory for the good guys. The industry then tried to take it to the Supreme Court in 2005, and they denied hearing it. So that meant that the circuit court ruling held, and the cases were not preempted. So the cases were remanded back to the states and eventually consolidated in D.C. Superior Court, which is the process that we're in now. The recent hearing that went for two weeks in Judge Alfred Irving's courtroom um, ended September 30th, What's happening now is that the attorneys on both sides must submit their closing arguments by Thanksgiving. And then Judge Irving will decide if the cases move forward to trial or not. Of course, I and the other plaintiffs and the attorneys who have worked so hard on this hope that they move forward. And you can bet that either way, there's going to be appeal after appeal after appeal after appeal. So, but eventually, hopefully we see some justice and some progress. You know, not everyone who uses a cell phone will get a brain tumor. I think it was 10% of smokers got lung cancer, but it's still a huge concern because we have an entire population of children, you know, using them and growing up not knowing anything else. Ellie Marks, founder of the California Brain Tumor Association and relentless fighter for people's right to know about the potential hazards of cell phone radiation and all other kinds of wireless radiation. 
That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Special thanks to our guest and friend, Ellie Marks, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. 